0: We now come to that wonderful time in a worship service, the very pinnacle of a worship service, where we have the opportunity to humble ourselves before the preaching of the word of God. And so I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. We have been in the gospel of Matthew for many months as we've been going through it, verse by verse, understanding The wonderful truths that the spirit of God has for us in this wonderful gospel that emphasizes Christ as the sovereign king. And this morning we find ourselves in a text that gives us many very practical insights regarding our duty as Christians with respect to government and taxes. But also we will learn much about the machinations and the manipulations, if you will, of wicked men, things that we all encounter in our everyday lives, we will see once again firsthand the schemes of the devil and thus be alerted to some of his snares. Before we read the text this morning, may I remind you that this would now be Wednesday of the Passover week, many times called the Passion Week, the Lord will... Very soon be crucified. And Jesus has just finished a trilogy of judgment parallels, condemning uh, judgment parables, excuse me, condemning the religious elite of Israel, exposing their self-righteous pride and hypocrisy and so on. And so now the religious elite, as they stand around the temple area, are. Thoroughly infuriated by Jesus, he has challenged their authority. He has exposed them publicly, actually humiliated them on their own turf, namely the temple. In fact, we saw in his last parable how they declined the ultimate invitation by the king to attend the son's wedding feast. And there he exposed their deliberate and arrogant unbelief refusing to believe him to be the Messiah. But also, may I remind you, as we look at the text before us today, that in that last parable, we were also warned much about those who superficially attach themselves to a church, refusing to adorn themselves, shall we say, with the proper attire provided by the king, as that parable would indicate Who refuse to wear the robes of righteousness of Christ, religious externalists, people who are merely onlookers of Christianity, and certainly this is rampant in our culture. They have all kinds of desire with respect to being served within a church. They want to sit at the feast of mercy, shall we say, but they have no desire to give homage to the king, give homage to the son to live lives that would glorify the triune God. These would be those who defy the holy monarch and unlawfully attend the banquet of grace with no thought of heart obedience, no thought of holy living people that just kind of come and show up around Christian circles, especially in the church, but they are indifferent to the sanctifying work of the spirit. They have no love for the word of God. They have no desire to apply it to their life. They have no hungering and thirsting for righteousness, no loyalty to the king. Those that we would define as participants of churchianity rather than Christianity. Where it is custom, not faith, that motivates them. And where it is culture, not love, that keeps them coming back. And we learned in that last parable that... These type of hypocritical intruders will always dine with the true church. They will always somehow be a part of it, attached to it in a superficial way. But they will only do so until the day the king enters that great banquet hall of the saints. And with the penetrating eyes of omniscient holiness, he will cast his gaze upon those who are arrogant, the impostors, And he will say As Jesus reminds us at the end of that parallel parable, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. So it's a very sobering parable that the Lord has just given to the religious elite, as well as all of the multitudes that are gathering around. And now with this stinging condemnation ringing in their ears, still refusing to repent, mind you. They are enraged and they conspire against the Holy One of Israel to kill him, to trap him. And we read about this now in verse 15 of Matthew 22. Follow along as I read. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, We know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they marveled and leaving him, they went away. Dear friends, today we will see the persistent rebellion of unbelief warring against the truth as these religious phonies confront Jesus. We will also observe how the battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light is an ongoing thing. And I would like to unfold the text for you in three different ways. First of all, there's two scenes that we see. Number one, we're going to see the trap set and number two, we're going to see the trap sprung, but we will also look thirdly at the truth applied with respect to the Christian's duty and government. First of all, let's look at how they tried to set the trap for Jesus. In verse 15, they counsel together how they might trap him and what he said. Now, here's the picture, folks. Jesus is continuing to teach the curious crowds in the court of the Gentiles. And the embattled Pharisees are conspiring against Jesus. They're probably over in the shadows behind some of the great pilasters of the temple. And they're seeking to trap him, the Word of God says. To trap means literally to ensnare. It has the notion in the original language of catching someone off guard. And the context here would be to entice Jesus to say something. That would be considered either treasonous to Rome, resulting in his arrest and certainly his execution, or, on the other hand, to say something that would be incendiary to the Jews, especially the Jewish zealots, and cause the multitude to be turned against him. It's amazing, isn't it? This is always the modus operandi of the wicked. Rather than falling on their face in heartfelt repentance, In the presence of divine condemnation, rather than that, they will conspire to somehow war against the truth. And certainly one of the surest marks of the spiritually dead is their persistent commitment to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as Romans one tells us And friends. You can think of it this way. It's as though the serpent of sin stands guard at the dark doors of the caverns of one's conscience. And then when truth begins to enter, it's as though that serpent spits its venom of deceit and distortion at the slightest appearance of truth. And suddenly one's mind is filled with false teaching, justifications, rationalizations, and many times pure hatred of the truth. And this was certainly what was going on in the hearts of those people that stood before Jesus that day. And I would submit to you, it continues to this day. In most people's hearts and only the spirit of grace can possibly slay such a fiend. So the Pharisees are fighting hard now to silence their conscience. They want to maintain their power over the people by setting a trap now for the son of man. And I think of what an inconceivable act of wickedness this is. One day, by the way, these types of things will be judged when, according to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 29, verse 20, we read that the terrible one is brought to nothing. That day when the scornful one is consumed and all who watch for iniquity are cut off, those who make a man an offender by a word and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate and turn aside the just by empty words. Friends, all down through history to this very day, we watch those in rebellion to Christ try to spin the truth, try to distort the truth so that they can make it say something that is pleasing to them. We find people wanting to find ear tickling preachers that will tell people what they want to hear rather than tell them what the truth is. We see people trying to redefine God, to recreate him in their own image So that he now is nothing more than kind of a smiley face Jesus that will wink at sin. We see people today that reinvent ministry within the church so that it no longer resembles anything that is even close to what God would have us do in a New Testament church. It becomes nothing more than a Las Vegas floor show. But God warns. Of what is going to happen to those who think they outsmart God, even as these people are thinking that they're going to outsmart the Son of God. There's going to be a different outcome someday, according to 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 and following. Here's what the Spirit of God tells us through the Apostle Paul in that text Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So indeed, these wise Pharisees now are going to trap the one who is God The Lord Jesus. And in verse 16, we see something interesting. It says that they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Well, this is a curious development, a curious plot. I wonder why they would send their disciples. Well, the text doesn't really tell us, but I could surmise that had the Pharisees gone on their own, the Lord would have recognized them very quickly. The Lord would have recognized them by their face, not to mention the ridiculous robes and hats that they wore. By the way, false religionists are always obsessed with the external. So like strutting peacocks, they love to flaunt their spiritual elitism with ostentatious and many times grotesque garb, apparel, paraphernalia. This is very common in many false religions. You see it, for example, in Roman Catholicism, which is a modern day counterpart to ancient Pharisaism. So. Rather than being seen and the Lord recognizing them and immediately being suspect, they decide to send their students, their disciples. But not only that, they decide to send the students with the Herodians. Now, friends, this is an especially interesting maneuver because this very unlikely alliance would be unheard of in that day. If people really knew that the Pharisees and the Herodians were getting together because they hated each other. You see, the Herodians were considered to be religious traitors by the Jews. They were loyal to Herod, who was an Edomian. And if you study your scripture, you will see that the Edomians were the descendants of the ancient Edomites, who were, in fact, the greatest enemies of ancient Israel. So these were Idumeans; They were not even Jewish. However, the Herodians also wanted to get rid of Jesus. Remember now, they were loyal to Herod Antipas, who had beheaded John the Baptist. And so they were only too willing to get rid of this prophet from Nazareth. So they joined together with the Pharisees. Friends, may I also remind you to never forget that heretics may differ among themselves, but they will always be united against the truth, regardless of what they believe. They will always unite against the truth. And we often witness sinful agendas, galvanizing enemies against a common cause, battling the truth. And even now, we witness the mobilization of competing faiths in the ecumenical movement especially here in the United States, where many people set aside their enormous differences, doctrinal differences in an effort to stand against the exclusivity of the gospel of Christ. You see, all false religions hate what I'm about to say, and that is that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. That is the most offensive statement in the history of the world. And yet that is the gospel of Christ. And so all other faiths will do anything and everything they can, even if they differ amongst themselves, to somehow squelch anyone who would preach such a hideous thing. But in fact, that is the truth. If I can digress for a moment, this whole ecumenical movement will only escalate as time goes on and it will reach its zenith during the time of the Great Tribulation, just prior to our Lord's second coming in Revelation 17, we read about this and you don't necessarily have to turn there. I'll just remind you of a few passages. This. This galvanizing of false religions against the truth is called the great harlot in Revelation 17, and by the way, throughout scripture, we see that prostitution frequently symbolized religious apostasy and idolatry. And that's why we can read in Revelation 17, verse 1, a description of what John saw in his vision of the things to come. There we read, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And there in that text, we see that this great apostate, false ecumenical church will be like a great ruler. The amalgamation of of all of these religions will come together as one great false religious system. And the whole world will become intoxicated by her deceptions. And John goes on to describe her in verses three and following as a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. By the way, this is a picture of that harlot church's political alliance with Antichrist that will rule in that day, which was not unlike the alliance of the religious people, even within Jerusalem in Jesus' day, who were allied with the Romans. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, all of them In bed with that great political power, John goes on to describe the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So this will be a great, powerful church, a very wealthy church with many names. And he goes on and he describes now how. That this great harlot will be like the prostitutes, even in Jesus' day, the prostitutes of Rome, that had a headband that they would wear. And on the forehead of this great harlot church, we read, there is a name that is written, and here it is, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And we're told that he saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, And with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And again, friends, may I remind you that the greatest persecutor of the true church has always been and will always be apostate false religions. Well, this is precisely what Jesus was experiencing. Now, the Pharisees, the Herodians, kind of an ecumenical mix getting together here, all of them galvanized together in their hatred of Christ so the disciples or the Pharisees now send their disciples to trap Jesus, along with some of the political puppets of Rome, the, the Herodians. By the way, according to Luke's gospel in Luke 20 and verse 20, we read that their motive was to catch him in some statement so as to deliver him up to the rule and the authority of the governor. And of course, the governor of that day was Pilate. Now, think about this. This is a very clever web that they are. About to weave due to their well-known animosity towards Rome. The Pharisees knew that the Romans wouldn't believe them if they said, oh, Jesus is saying something bad about you. So the Herodians became the perfect co-conspirators because the Herodians were sympathetic to Rome. Now, notice how they set the trap in verse 16, the end of the verse. They're approaching Jesus now disguised in humility with with utmost honor and with lips dripping now with the venom of malicious flattery. And they say to him, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God and truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. In other words, they're saying, Rabbi, we, we recognize your purity of doctrine. We recognize your, your theological acumen. Your theological prowess. We recognize that you are unwilling to compromise to anyone. We've seen your your courage in the face of opposition. We see how you refuse to be swayed by popular opinion. So we're coming to you now to ask you a question. So there's the setup. There's the trap like those who will shake your hand with one hand and clutch a dagger in the other they come to him, as the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs twenty-six twenty-three, with fervent lips, fervent lips with a wicked heart, he says, are like earthenware covered with silver dross. He who hates disguises it with his lips and lays up deceit within himself when he speaks kindly, do not believe him. For there are seven abominations in his heart. Beloved, I have learned and I hope you have learned. And if you haven't, I warn you, beware of flatterers. With their words, they will stroke your ego and they will gain your trust. They will lull you to sleep with their compliments. And then like Jael deceived Sisera and Judges 5. They will drive a tent stake through your temple into the ground. I have learned to give little regard to what others say about me, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And I love the old Puritan statement, John Trapp, way back in the 1600s, he put it this way. And I quote, I'm no more lifted up nor cast down with men's flatteries or slanders than with the shadow of mine own body. For I think not myself either longer or shorter at morning or at noon, because my shadow is so. Well, certainly Jesus knew what these deceivers were up to. And I have to laugh, only a fool, insane with pride, would dare to spar with the omniscient Christ, but spar they will. And in verse 17, they say, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful To give a poll tax to Caesar or not. Now, you must understand. While the Romans exacted many forms of taxes to benefit the emperor and the nobles and the politicians, not at all unlike our country today, not to mention serve and protect the citizens. The poll tax was the most offensive tax for the Jews. They hated that tax. It was sometimes called the head tax because it was a census tax placed on every individual, and it was payable every year. By the way, when Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem, it was for the reason of taking the census so that Rome could know who they can charge. Now, the Herodians loved the tax because they benefited from it, not at all unlike our congressmen and senators today who love certain taxes that are much to their benefit. But the Jews despised the tax. They hated this tax. You see, they saw themselves as God's chosen people, not Caesar's people. And so it was an issue of ownership for them, an issue of worship. By the way, eventually this tax became so hated that it incited the zealot rebellion in A.D. 66, And of course, you know that By A.D. 70, the Romans came came in and utterly slaughtered the Jews and put down that rebellion. So the trap is now set. You see, if Jesus answers, well, yes, I think it is unlawful to give a poll tax to Caesar. I think that it is an offense to God. Immediately they would say, oh, Roman guards, did you hear that? He's an insurrectionist. He's speaking treason. Arrest him. But on the other hand, if Jesus were to say, well, no, I I think it is lawful, then immediately all of the Jews would turn against him. They would be aghast that he would say such a thing. And so he was in what we would call a catch-22. Either way, the Pharisees are thinking, we've got him. By the way, it's fascinating to me when I think about it. Subversives are relentless in trying to... Sway popular opinion. We see this with politicians today, don't we? Always trying to, to somehow spin the truth to get the naive and the ignorant to believe something. The media, the biased media is notorious for doing the same thing. Well, obviously, Jesus is on to them. He sees through their silly little trap that they have set. In fact, John 2:25 tells us that he himself, referring to Jesus, knew what was in man. So now, secondly, we're going to see the trap sprung. Look at this in verses 18 through 21. But Jesus perceived their malice and said, "Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. Now don't you know at this point, the Pharisees are just giddy back there in the shadows. They're rubbing their hands together and jumping up and down. Oh, goody, can you believe it? He's going to fall for it. We've got him. So they were only too quick to find him a coin, which would have been a denarius. Now, a denarius was a silver coin. It had the value of one day's wage. It was common for workers. It was common for soldiers for a day's wage. And it was the only coin that could be used for the poll tax. But it was very offensive to the Jews because it bore the engraving of the emperor. And you see, they understood the Mosaic law, even though they had distorted it a bit, as you will see. They understood in Exodus 20 and verse four that God has said, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. So the Mosaic law strictly forbade making images. By the way, um, I remember when I was in in Israel, uh, we're told, and you will quickly find this out if you break this little rule, the Orthodox Jews do not want their picture taken because they believe that their picture would violate this very law. That it would become a graven image, by the way, I've I've got to give you this as a footnote because it's important for you to understand in this particular text and others. When God outlawed graven images or, or any likeness of him, dear friends, he was not declaring a wholesale prohibition against artist expression, artistic expression. That wasn't the purpose here. So don't don't go home and throw away your pictures of Jesus or your or your little children's books that have a drawing of Jesus in it as if you're somehow breaking God's law. You see, what God was concerned about is this issue of idolatry, of false worship. Which resulted from man-made representations of God. And also, you must remember, for the Jews of that day, not to mention many people of this day, people who have an external religiosity, they have a veneer of religion, but they but they really don't have Christ in their heart. There's no reality within them. In order to somehow convince themselves of their spirituality, they have to do all kinds of external things. They become legalists, they become externalists, they become ritualists so that they can convince themselves, oh, look at all the things that I do, see how godly I am. You don't do those things, so you're not as godly as me. And, of course, that is the very type of hypocrisy that Jesus hated. And so, anyway, the Jews resented this denarius with its graven image. Now, the denarius that Jesus held was probably the one minted by Tiberius. And on side one, there was an engraving of his face. But if you turn it over to side two you will see an inscription that says Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Actually, I should say that is written on side one around his face. Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. But on side two, when you turn it over, and I've seen these coins in the British Museum, and we've got pictures of them in in some of our books, even here in the church library. On side two, there is an engraving of him. In his priestly robes, and he's got a diadem on his head, and he's sitting upon his throne as the high priest over the Roman Empire, and there is an inscription on that side that says, Pontiff Maxim, which means highest priest. So you see why the Jews were upset? And do you see why the Pharisees were thinking, oh, we've got him, whatever he says. He's dead meat, as we would put it in our vernacular. One source that I read offered some helpful historical insight about this whole matter. And I quote several emperors, including Julius Caesar, had even accepted appellations of deity for themselves, thereby demanding religious as well as political homage at the appearance of an unusual star in 17 B.C., Augustus Caesar had proclaimed a 12 day celebration at which the Roman College of Priests, of which he was chief, granted mass absolution from sin for all the people of the empire. During that same year, coins were minted, claiming Augustus as the son of God. And the idea of a divine emperor was inconceivably repulsive to the Jews. So I hope you begin to get the feel now of what's going on here. In the temple court. Now, again, imagine the Pharisees grinning with delight as they hide in the shadows around the temple court when Jesus held up that corn coin and said, whose likeness and inscription is this? You see, they also knew that Jesus claimed to be the son of God. So, my, we got a real conflict here because the emperor also was claiming deity. You see, the, the Pharisees were just certain that Jesus would denounce the emperor as a blasphemer. And if so, Jesus would be an insurrectionist. Notice what happens at the end of verse 19. They brought him a denarius and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then I catch this. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. Oh, my. The silence must have been deafening. I wish I could have seen the look on the Pharisees face on the disciples face of the the disciples of the Pharisees and on the faces of the Herodians. Their, Their mouths must have been hanging open. They began to look at each other in utter dismay, thinking, Oh, no, what has just happened here? They they were probably too confounded to even be embarrassed. I'm reminded of Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes 2.14, where we read, The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And these dear fools just fell in a ditch that they had dug for the Savior. Jesus had sprung their trap, but without being caught And again, who but a fool would ever dare to match wits with God? That's why in verse 22 we read, In hearing this, they marveled, and leaving him, they went away. You see, Jesus had silenced them with one simple sentence. What a profound statement. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. By the way, the term render in the original language means to give back that which is due. It was used as in paying a debt that was owed. Jesus was saying, yes, pay the emperor what is due. But by implication, he is also saying pay him only what he is due, namely the tax, not the homage which belongs to God alone. It's interesting to me that he did not use the same term as his malevolent questioners did in verse 17, they asked him to catch the nuance here. Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? You see, the word give implies that the tax would not be appropriate, that you're just giving kind of like a donation. That it is not a legitimate payment rendered in return for certain services. Jesus didn't use that term because, indeed, the Roman government did give Many, many services to its citizens. They had in that day what was called Pax Romana, which was Roman peace. They had a massive military that protected the people from warring invaders. They had not only that, but they had military police. They had judges that that they supplied through through the taxation. They had courts. They had prisons. They had Incredible roads and aqueducts and on and on it goes. Massive trade routes that they built, places for them to do trade and so on. So Jesus is saying to them, the tax is legitimate. Pay it. But, he says, render to God the things that are God's. And, of course, Jesus would say that because, my friend, we, we are made in the image of God. Our soul bears his image. So we give him his due. We are to be living sacrifices We're to give him all of the glory and the service and the gratitude that is due to him. My mind immediately goes to Psalm 29 in verse one. There the psalmist says, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name, worship the Lord in holy array. And also in Psalm 95, beginning in verse one. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is he for it was he who made it. And his hands formed the dry land. So he goes on to say, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Oh, child of God, our debt to God is beyond calculation. And were it not for his grace, no man could ever possibly stand in his presence debt free. But in fact, Jesus has paid in full the penalty for our sin. How could we give him anything less than our all? So we've seen the trap set, we've seen it sprung, and now for a few minutes, let me apply the truth for us to give you some practical implications with respect to our Christian duty and government. Yes, I know, all of us complain about taxes. I do, you do, we all do. And I would concur that, in my opinion, we are overtaxed. I believe that our government is wasteful. I believe that our government is a poor steward of much of what it gets. I believe that many policies and programs that the government has are ridiculous. And I believe that we have greedy politicians. But, folks, welcome to a fallen world. That's how it's always going to be. We can vote. And we can complain to a certain extent within reason. But God says, I want you to honor them and pay your taxes. Before I elaborate on that a bit, I've got to share with you a list that someone sent me. You're probably like me. You get all these things that come in the email, get these funny little things. Someone has made up a list about taxes that we pay here. And I'm not even going to read them all, but I'll go through them rather quickly. We have... Taxes that are for accounts receivable, we have building permit tax, capital gains tax, CDL license tax. We have cigarette tax, corporate income tax, federal income tax, federal unemployment tax. Fishing license tax, food license, fuel permits, gasoline tax, which is 42 cents per gallon, hunting license tax. Guys, we know about that, don't we? Inheritance tax, interest expense, which is tax on the money, inventory tax, IRS interest charges, which is tax on top of tax. He says IRS penalties, which is tax on top of tax, liquor tax, local income tax, luxury taxes, marriage license tax, Medicare tax, property tax, real estate tax, septic permit tax. Service charge taxes, social security tax, road usage taxes, especially for truckers. We have sales tax, recreational vehicle tax, road toll booth taxes, school tax, state income tax, state unemployment tax. Telephone federal excise tax, telephone federal universal service fee tax, telephone federal state and local surcharge taxes, telephone minimum usage surcharge tax, telephone state and local tax, telephone usage charge tax, toll bridge taxes, toll tunnel taxes, traffic fines, which is indirect taxation, he says, as we all know trailer registration tax, utility taxes, vehicle license registration tax, vehicle sales tax, watercraft registration tax, well permit tax, and workers' compensation tax. And this writer adds a little comment, and I quote, not one of these taxes existed 100 years ago, and our nation was the most prosperous in the world, had absolutely no national debt, had the largest middle class in the world, And mom stayed home to raise the kids. I thought that was rather interesting. So after reading all of that, what should we do? Render unto Caesar. I know you didn't want me to say that. You thought I was going to build you up and say, folks, you know, let's get a rebellion going here. You know, let's go march on the White House. You see, friends, God has divinely ordained governments to rule over the people of the earth for orderly societies. And yes, many of these rulers are wicked. In fact, God is saying, I want you to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, knowing full well that that very government was about to crucify him. Boy, that puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Here's what the Apostle Paul told the Christians who were Roman citizens. Let every person, he says, be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. He goes on to say, wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God. I know that's hard to swallow when you look at our Congress at times, but ultimately they are God's servants, even though they may hate him. He goes on to say that these rulers are devoting themselves to this very thing. So render to all what is due them tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom fear to whom fear honor to whom honor Romans 13, one through two and verses five through seven. Bottom line, my friends, we have an obligation to pay our taxes As Christians, we are to be in subjection to governmental authorities unless they require us to do something that would violate God, God's word. So, for example, if the day comes when, and I believe it will, when they start telling me what I can and cannot preach, I will violate that law and I will obey God. When they tell you what you can or cannot teach your children, you will have to violate that. When they tell you how to discipline your children and how not to discipline your children, you're going to have to obey God, not man. And on and on it goes. Remember how Peter deliberately disobeyed the religious and political authority of the Sanhedrin who were in the power over Jerusalem. When they asked the apostles, they they actually gave the apostles uh, strict orders, according to Acts 528, not to continue teaching in Jesus name. What did Peter do? He said, we must obey God rather than men. So there's a difference there. Indeed, taxes in the USA are are onerous. And again, we can vote. We can complain. But folks, we've got to submit. Let God do what he's going to do. Let him work in our leaders. In fact, we're told to pray for our leaders. If we would pray for our leaders as much as we complain about them, I think this whole nation would be much better off. In 1 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 1, To pray for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of our God. Friends, I would submit to you that it is a serious tragedy when Christians disobey the law. Especially when they get involved in all of this social activism. You see, once again, folks, we have no political agenda, according to Scripture. We have a great commission to fulfill. Ours is not a political mandate. We're citizens of another kingdom. Political activism, especially when it involves violating the law, never brings honor, never brings glory to God. In fact, civil disobedience typically results in violent outbursts, even among Christians, Causing us to hate the very people that we're called to love. That's why we have to be so careful with that. We've got to be careful that we don't make our mission field our enemy and therefore ruin our testimony. It was for this reason that Peter said in 1 Peter 2 13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evil doers and the praise of those who do right for such is the will of god that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men well i just pray that god will humble us all before his sovereign rule even if it means temporarily submitting to those who are a stranger to the god that we love dear friends pay your taxes Pray for those that he has placed in authority over us and pray that your testimony and mine will be a beacon of truth to those who are lost in the dark seas of hope and hopelessness and sin. And may God have the glory as people observe our willingness to honor him in this way. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for the clarity of your word, and we pray that you will apply it to our hearts. And Lord, I would pray especially for anyone within the sound of my voice who knows nothing of the God that we love, who knows nothing of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Lord, I pray that you will bring conviction to their heart Lord, may they confess their sin and come running to the mercy that you will give them and may even today be the day that they Experience the miracle of the new birth. For we pray this in the precious name of Jesus and for his glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.